We'll save that one for the end. Okay. Uh, welcome, everybody, to Bagpipe Nation. It's March 24th, uh, 2011. And uh, we're here with Jack Lee, who we'll introduce in just a moment. Just a quick review uh, on your uh, control panel. You have the ability to uh, click the hand button if you want to call in with a question. And you can also chat, um, uh, you know, send us text questions as well, which we'll be sure to try to address as the show uh, progresses. So, uh, yeah, Jack, are you out there? I'm here. Uh, it's great to have you with us. And I think the illustrious co-host, Vin Janowski, is tuning in from somewhere uh, in his car in New Jersey. Is he out there? He's never there. Yeah. Are you yes, there? I'm not here. Okay, mm-hmm. Vin's here. Okay, you're never you're never there. You're, ne- you're never okay. there when we need you, Vin. You know. I don't know. It's it's, it's a pause or something. Yeah, it could be. But uh, anyway, so Jack Lee is uh, stationed in, not stationed, is from Burnaby, British Columbia, and mm-hmm. um, it was certainly a huge influence of mine uh, when I lived out there for sure. And uh, I don't know what what else can you tell us about yourself, Jack? Like, uh, tell us a very brief history. Okay, well, I'm um, yeah. I actually live in Surrey, which is about an hour outside of Vancouver, and I spent a lot of my life in Burnaby, BC, which is where the SFU band practices and Robert Malcolm Memorial. So uh, anyway, I live out here. I have three sons; they're all pipers in SFU. So it's certainly a piping family. I've um, spent most of my life playing the bagpipes. Really, I can't remember a time when I wasn't the piper. But, um, because I was born into a piping family. And of course, they could probably say the same thing, my kids, being born into a piping family. But uh, so now I'm, I'm a professional bagpiper, and I make my living playing, teaching, and being involved in piping in one way or other. That's great. So you've won, uh, you've won many uh, major prizes. When was your first gold medal? I seem to recall it being you were pretty young when you won your first gold medal. I was, it was, let's see now, in 1981, I was 23 years old, and uh, yeah, the first one I won was at uh, Inverness, way, way back, I'm just trying to remember where the, what the, the venue was, in. oh, it was Eden Court, it had just moved to the Eden Court Theater, I think, and, and uh, the tune that day was Black Donald's March, so I remember feeling uh, pretty good about it, I thought I'd played well, but you know, it's a really, really st- tough contest for sure. And you never know how it's going to go, but I remember actually being happy with how I played. And, of course, when the result came out, it was, you know, really, I was very, very happy. It was a life changer for sure. And uh, do that. And my next, I remember when I won that gold medal in 81, <laughs> somebody saying to me, you know, making some comment about trying for the open gold medal. And I, said, I remember actually saying, hey, it's going to be 20 years before I win that open gold medal. And the person I said it to said, what are you talking about? Well, I just knew that I, I wouldn't. I was about to get into university, and I was going to busy, be busy with that. And bands going strong. I knew I wouldn't have enough vacation time to do Oban, Inverness, Worlds, you know, holiday with the family and all that. So, as it turned out, it was exactly 20 years later, 2001, that I won the Oban gold medal. So it wasn't that many years ago. I remember that year as well. Uh, you also uh, you won the former winners, right? That same year. Like yeah, I won the senior Peabrook that day. Oh, yeah, the senior, the senior. The open gold medal was uh, with a seldom. They, they pick these sometimes abstract lists of tunes for you to choose your selections from, so you, you don't have a lot of control over. So the tune I won the open gold medal with 
was a tune called Lament for Captain Donald McKenzie, which is a tune out of, I'm going to say, book 10 or 11 in the Peabark Society. One of those tunes I haven't played too much ever since, but I have to say. It's too close to Donald Van McCrimmon, so I, shortly after being done with the, with the Open Gold Medal, I kind of dropped it from my active repertoire. And that day, yeah, I was fortunate enough to win the Senior Peabark with a tune called Craigellahy, which is one of the big tunes, a very tough tune and a, uh, a terrific tune to play. So, yeah, it was a happy day for sure. Yeah, that's cool. And since then, uh, you've... Uh... You know, you've won the clasp. Uh, have you won it more than once, or? or, or I won it twice. Yeah. Twice, yeah. And uh, so, uh, needless to say, uh, lots of really awesome prizes. And um, so recently, you've gone into the reed making business, and that, I think mm-hmm. that's what uh, we're most interested in uh, tonight is uh, to hear about that experience a little bit. And I don't know if you can, uh, without uh, giving it all away, you know, uh, give us a little bit of an idea of of what. Uh, you know, read makings all about, and uh, um, so yeah. So how did you uh, how did you decide to get into that to the read making thing? Okay, well that's that. I can honestly say I've been interested in read making for probably thirty years. I thought about getting into it a little bit when I was in high school, <laughs> and one thing led to another, and I didn't. But I, mean, I remember actually making some jigs and things to to cut the blades with, and. and and jigs to make the staples with. I actually did that just after high school. Uh, but most of the past 30 years with SFU and with my own personal piping, I've been very, very um, interested in reed manipulation. And I'm, I'm the guy that that fixes reeds and tunes reeds and adjusts reeds and you know, pokes them and shaves them and this all this stuff. I've always been interested in that side of it. <clears throat> and um, But in the back of my mind, I was somewhat interested in getting into reed making. Um, as much for the interest of doing it as, you know, not just for like making a living or whatever, but the fun and the challenge, I guess the challenge is the right word. So anyway, um, that was always in my mind and I was always interested. Now, meanwhile, my eldest son, Andrew, who's 23, he's a CNC machinist, got his, uh, degree in that a year or so, year or so ago, I guess. And he was interested in, in that as well. So... We've gone down this path and started our business, Lee and Sons Bagpipes. dot com, where we're um, making pipe chanter reads, and uh, there's a lot of music downloads. And I'll tell you about that later, I guess. But anyway, it's been yeah, it's been an adventure. I can tell you, we spent months researching and developing and and coming up with our own reads. And it's not, you know, it's not rocket science. It just takes a, a terrific amount of patience to to do it. We walked through. I don't know how many hundreds of scenarios and options for design. Can you try um, them all? You know. Can you tell us, like, can you go into more depth about maybe some of the things you considered? I know you you told me okay. uh, uh, at one point, you know, uh, you at one point you decided to go with a ridge cut. Uh, you know, why you was did, that? Yeah. Okay, so on on the blades, yeah, you have several options on blades, but they fall in, fall into two main camps. One is a ridge cut, and one is a more of a smooth cut. Um, and I, I think both are good. Okay, I mean, the majority of reeds on the market these days would be in the ridge cut family, probably. But uh, I can I certainly played the McAllister reed through the 70s and 80s, 
and that was uh, most definitely not a ridge cut read. So that you can make a good read being not a ridge cut, but we found ourselves that the read was just better with a ridge cut. It had more zap to it, more more crack to it, and we have a, just a harder time getting the same sound out of a smoother cut read. In, in the, with a ridge cut read, you end up with a pretty thick base. The 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 thick part of the reed is relatively thick, and the thin part is, you know, relatively thin. And it comes down from a pronounced ridge. So we did a lot of experimenting. You know, how steep is the angle? Where should the ridge be? And all that. But and but in the end, the ridge cut worked better for us. The other big design decision is in the staples, and um, you know, the two main camps are the seamless staple and the staple with the seam. Uh, majority of reeds out there have a seam. We have a seam, and we we went down the path of trying to find a way for the seamless staple to work for us because it's a lot easier to make, and it will be very very consistent. But we could not find a way to get the reed sounding proper, making a proper sound with the seamless staple. It was just way better with the uh, the the staple with the seam. So we you know, abandoned that direction and went the, to the uh, seamed staple. Now, what are some reeds with without the seam? I like uh, what I would be right by saying maybe the shepherd reed doesn't have the, the seam in it. Yeah, this that's the only one that actually comes to my mind, but there, I know there must be more. There must be more. The shepherd for sure makes a very nice reed, really good reed, with a, a seamless staple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is made out of I'm going to say brass. We experimented with brass, which is a very strong, you know, plenty strong enough as a metal and all that. I don't know how Shepard does it, but he's making a very good read. Yeah, it's funny. Out it's, of a seam, seamless. It's, it's funny like that you couldn't figure out how to get the sound right. Uh, you know, it's funny to hear you say that and then no, so they must have some way of doing it, I guess. Oh. Uh, to get the sound. If you can picture a straw. Um, you take a, take the end of your straw, which is a round opening, and pinch it. Pinch it close. Pinch it just a halfway closed. Um, so you'll have a, you know, much narrower diameter, half the diameter now of the from top to bottom in that straw. But your left to right will have swollen, so that it's flaring farther to the left and the right. Right. And that is just the way a, uh, a tube. Um, reacts to a to a pinch okay so because you're going farther left to right is way more difficult to to tie your blades around that wider left to right distance we found that so i, I don't know how shepherd's doing it but he's clearly doing it um i so you know nearly all or close to all of the other reed makers in the world use a seamed staple staple with a seam and with that design the amount of left to right at the tip that goes inside the reed is essentially no wider than the round end of the staple at the far end. So if you could take your take your staple and fold it flat and look down on it, you would not have a rectangle. You'd have something wider at the base and, and narrow at the top. And that's that's how reed makers generally make the staple. So it's a smaller opening inside the reed. Okay, so that's cool. Here's another question for you. Just uh... I don't know, Vin, are you back in? I think he might have gotten booted out. I don't know if we got anything coming from Vin. So, uh, oh, is he? Um, 
that's okay. Yeah, so that's okay. We'll keep going with, tell me, um, you know, without needing to name names of other reed makers, where, you know, where do some reed makers maybe, uh, where do they not succeed in your opinion? Uh, and, you know, maybe what are some of the strengths that you've gone for with, with your particular reed? Okay. Um, well, I would say that <laughs> all reed makers make good and bad reeds, and we are the same. We all make good, we all make bad, and, and it's not that we're doing a poor job of trying to be consistent. We here in the Leon Sons factory, we're doing everything we can possibly think of to make our reeds the same one to the next, as consistent as we possibly can. And same with the other reed makers. But cane is a, is a wild card, a complete wild card. The density of the cane varies like you would not believe. And um, you can sometimes look at cane and it looks like it's going to be great and you begin to make a reed and it becomes, you know, mush. So, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe one thing that we're able to do is, uh, you know, I've been a professional piper for 30 years, so actually that's not true, closer to 40 years, holy cow. Anyway, um, I do test, I blow every reed, so I actually put it in my chat and blow it, so I'm, you know, probably able to test a reed maybe uh, thoroughly, I guess is the word or something. Um, but other reed makers do that too. I mean, I think I think the other reed makers in the world make a good reed. I'm not a person that would ever sit here and say that other reed other reeds are not good because I don't even believe that. I think that the a lot of the reed makers in the world are making a really good product. Yeah, so and it's a so, situation. Um, it's just a situation where you know they each have their own unique qualities and yeah. and maybe not even necessarily depending on how the reed comes out. Yeah, and I wish I wish them nothing but success. Before we went live in middle of December, I actually emailed the majority of reed makers in the world, the ones that I think of, just to say, you know, we're getting into basically just to let them know that we were getting into the reed making business. But I wasn't in any way trying to compete with them at all. It was, it was much more a case of of uh, starting a family business with my sons. Yeah. And having the, the the enjoyment of doing that as a father and and family, and much more so than competing with them. And so, um, the other reed makers, I think you're, I think yeah, everyone that I emailed was emailed right back to say congratulations, way to go, you know, welcome to the party, good luck. And I think they meant it because that's and that's how I would feel too, if, you know, when the next few more reed makers come into the reed making game. I believe the pipers. Um, I know it's not an unlimited demand for reeds, but basically there's room for more reed makers out there because reed making is time consuming, it's frustrating, it's, it's exhilarating. You get a tremendous change um, of emotions when you make a reed. So, uh, you know, I don't think pipe the uh, chanter reed makers view each other as competitors, really. There's enough business going around, and we're all busy. We are absolutely swamped. Swamp, swamp, swamp. Yeah. I've never been busier in in my life. That's um than I have in the past few months. That's an interesting point and I would uh you know, I definitely agree with you. You know, um here's one for you. Uh what do you think about the uh sort of equilibrium price of uh channerids in the market, like, you know, somewhere between uh, you know, fourteen and eighteen bucks? You know, is that the right like is it is the labor worth more or what do you think? Yeah, it, it it is worth a lot more, I I believe, and I think the price is going to go up. And I'm not I'm not saying we're going to raise it or lead it. I'm just saying, 
Uh, I just know how many hours we're working to make, you know, a batch of reeds. Holy cow! It's uh, it's a and I'm sure the other guys are doing the same. So I can see the price going up. It's I definitely almost, yeah, the price I mean, going up. I think perhaps would it be fair to say that um, in the past it's been, generally speaking, although I'm sure there were exceptions, more of a labor of love type of thing when people made reeds, and then uh, you know. As more uh, business types make it, yeah, I, I agree. I, I see the price going up. I mean, uh, you could look at the Easy Drone uh, pipe reed. You know, they just went straight out with it, and they said, "We're going to make good reeds, and we're going to charge more for it." Um, yeah, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. The Easy Drone is a very good product. Really, really good. Consistent as anything, and um, they've done very, very well. I think all power to them. So your question was about on, on price. I can see prices going up. I think most few fewer people would make reads now as kind of a labor of love. Love, and I know the oboe and bassoon uh, musicians. It's part of the culture of their instruments that you know many of the many of the musicians make their own reads. It's very very cool. But in piping, it's not that way. We're too busy, or we're you know none of the patients, or whatever. Um, we tend to just buy our reads from the people that are making them. So. Yeah, see where it all goes. That's interesting. Let me do a shout out to Vin. Have you figured out how to get in, Vin? Uh, I'm here. Oh, can yeah. you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now. Yeah. Do you got anything? Uh, any questions for Jack? I know you've been kind of struggling with your connection there. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, it's. Andrew helped us. Yeah. Hold on, Vin. Hold on. Hold on. Can you mute your computer mic? Are you called in on the phone or something? Uh, hold on a second. Yeah. Like uh, mute one or the other, and then try again. There. That was How's scary. That, that was kind of like uh, Alien, the sequel, or something. <laughs> Is it better? Yeah, that's much better. We can hear what you're saying now. So, uh, uh, um, what do you got there, Vin? Yeah. Well, I was, you know, I was asking. I mean, I think Jack mentioned, you know, there's a lot of reed makers out there making a lot of good reeds. I mean, and you know, you're you're tackling it because of the the fun of it and you know, the sort of challenge of it all, but I mean, what do you, what do you hope people get out of the lee weeds versus, say, some of these others that are out there? I mean, you hope you just to add to the soup, as to where, or is there something extra in these reeds that you think people will get? Yeah, so I guess I don't think of our reeds as, you know, trying to be better than everybody else or anything like that, right? All we are trying to do is make a good reed that people enjoy playing. You know, we think we're doing that, and uh, we hear feedback from time to time that people say that you know they, they enjoy the read so we're just trying to make a good read I'm the read is a is the type of read that I would play myself so two little points that have been very very important to me pretty much throughout my professional career is the Pibrock High G that's a critical note for me and uh, the efficiency of a read so I'm first on the Pibrock High G um, it has frustrated me for 30-some-odd years that the modern chanters and modern reed combinations have a very, very hard time producing a good Pibrock IG. When I became a professional piper 40 years ago, almost, um, we were playing a much at a much lower pitch in an old, older-fashioned chanter. Pibrock IG was never even discussed. It was so easy to do, and now it's so challenging. So... I really wanted to produce a reed that would that would make a nice Pibrock IG, a stable note. And ours is actually 
I can say a pretty stable note on Pibrock High G. I, I play Pibrock with High Gs, uh, you know, very often, and I never really think too much about it. It just is not a concern for me. So, so I'm happy with that. And then the other one is the efficiency. So, yeah, when we were growing up, you know, we were told we had to play a hard read, and you know, if you want to have a big sound, you play a hard read, and, and you know, I'd completely disagree with that, and pretty much always have. For me, it's about efficiency. I, I want a big bang for the buck. So I'm way past the stage where I would play a hard read, but I want it to sound like a read with a little bit of um, crack to it. So, you know, I'm looking for a read that is um, reasonable input and lots of output. So those are the probably the two main things. So I is the, those are the two main things that I look for in in a read that I play myself. So, you know, that was very very important when we were designing our read. That it had to have those two characteristics, or I wouldn't be happy with it. You know. Um, ben, before you continue, does anybody out in the audience have questions? Be sure to uh, go ahead and uh, raise your hand uh, if you got anything that you want to call in. It's been kind of quiet tonight. I think people might be intimidated by you, Jack, or something. I hope not. <laughs> I probably have met a lot of your audience. I mean, I teach in, I have taught in the eastern U.S., assuming that most of your audience is from the eastern U.S. I've taught in the eastern U.S. for for years at uh, various things, but the main one has been the Invermark schools in um, Vermont, and now they're up in Hunter Mountain, and, and they were previously in Stonehill, at well, Stonehill know, College uh, in Massachusetts. So I've certainly been around the eastern U.S. a lot. I know I can see John Holcomb out there. I know he's a he's a piping hot summer drummer guy. Uh, he's a good, great, great, great guy. Just retired last year from from many many years of of uh, contribution at Eli Lilly, and he um, was involved in launching several several drugs for diabetes sufferers. So he's a, a great guy. He's in Florida and comes up to piping hot summer drummer every summer for our school. I don't suppose John Very has cool. any questions or comments out there. Well, I know Mary Wallace. You're out there, right? You must have something you can contribute. She's like well, a. She's well, while we're waiting for something, you know, if we want to, why don't we get into the nitty gritty of actually working with your reads, you know, particularly? I mean, you think, you know, now you've made, you've been making a bunch of them now for a while, and you know, do you see, are there any sort of unique um, tips or tricks to working with them that is maybe different than working with some of the other mixed reads? Um, The way I we work with our reads is pretty similar to the way we work with other reads. Um, this is going to sound strange, but it all gets down to poke, lick, and shave. So <laughs> I know that sounds odd, but uh, I really have not varied the way that I manipulate reads in any you know material way for 20 years or so. Um, when you put in one of our reads or one of anybody else's reads. Uh, you get a certain type of sound that you hopefully like at first, and over a period of time, the reed breaks in and it becomes moist. Moist, it goes from dry to moist, and lots of things happen. But in the end, to revitalize and rejuvenate a reed, it gets down to a little bit of poking, which means sticking a little mandrel up inside the reed and opening the staple a wee bit. A little bit of shaving, okay. And I do most of our shaving at the on the bottom half of a reed, so uh, between the string line and the ridge is where the majority of a shaving occurs. And then the pinching from time to time, you pinch the reed 
and lick it. So combination of all those things is very, very normal for me in our read and for every read I've played for many years. The, the, the day of a plug-and-play read, I've never been one that ever thought that there was such a thing as a plug-and-play read. Uh, certainly not me personally or in SFU. I've never had a plug-and-play read. They always need a little bit of tweaking here and there just to get the majority out of it. On the shaving, I like to leave shaving until the reed's been played a little bit and see where it's going before I pull the knife out and start chipping away. We leave enough beef on the bottom half of our reed that a you know a person can shave them a little bit if they want to. But I, as I said, like I recommend waiting just a you know a few days or whatever until it's beginning to break in and see what's needed. Um, Jack, here's a question from the floor, which I think is pretty uh, interesting, from David Hogg. Um, David Hogg, hey. Uh, how I does yeah? How does your read work with uh, various chanters? Uh, does your read favor any particular chanter? Okay, the the read actually works with. I'm going to say all chanters that I have in the house. So when we were developing, we had. Oh man, I don't know how many chanters I have in this. How many chanters? Different makes probably, I don't know, 15, like a lot. Um, so we you know, made sure the read would work in every chanter. Before it goes out the door, when people order off of our website, we ask them to tell us what type of chanter they're playing. And nearly everyone does that. Um, so I start by testing every, ch every read on a McCallum chanter. And I do that because McCallum seems to be the most uh, commonly played chanter. So I, everything works in the McCallum chanter before it leaves. Um, but if people ask me for it, people let me know they play, you know, nail chanters or shepherd chanters or Warner chanters or old Hardy's, Sinclair's, Gibson's, whatever. I uh, have a, a large at Henderson chanters, the modern Henderson, the old Henderson. Got a big stack of chanters which I go to to test the reads. The only, um, sort of big difference between the chanter, two or three of them have a very small reed seat, so you have to take a little bit of hemp off. So like the Shepherd chanter has a small reed seat, the Warnock chanter has a small reed seat, for example. But the reed works, our reed works totally fine in there. We just take a wee bit of hemp off and shove it in. The nail tends to have a larger reed seat than some of them. Brian Donaldson's chanter has a larger reed seat than some. And I uh, would just add a wee bit of hemp on so that the reed doesn't go in too deeply. But they definitely work in all the chanters that I have. Yeah, I mean, just to be a geek for a moment, uh, I have noticed that the Lee reeds, they seem to be wider around the base, like maybe a wider staple than perhaps uh, like a Ross or a Warnock or something. And so the reed seat does play a, a, a bit of a role there. It can be hard, uh, not hard, but, you know, it's, it, you know to sink the reed uh, can be, you know, you have to take more hemp off with, with your reeds than you might with others. No, maybe. Uh, I haven't really noticed that, to be honest with you. We... As I said, I put them in the Hendersons and the McCallums. Well, definitely McCallums every day. McCallum has a fairly standard size reed seat, I would say. The only ones that are, had to take hemp off, as I said, were the Warnock and the uh, Shepherd. Shepherd has quite a small reed seat. Probably ideally suited for the Shepherd reed. I don't know. Now, another question from the floor, Jack, and I don't know if it's something you uh, want to reveal, but uh, you know, wondering where you get the cane for the reeds. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you that. But I'm going to tell you that uh, you can go to Google and within one minute 
find a whole stack of cane suppliers out there. Yeah. Um, very, very easy to find. Do you find, you find it's generally the same, a good quality in general, like just by doing that? I mean, you know, it's risky. Yeah, no we, use, yeah we, get, we get our cane from the same place that the majority of reed makers out there get their cane. Yeah. And um, I, I, my impression is that it's, it's as consistent as it can be, which is by definition not that consistent. <laughs> okay. It's uh, it's very very frustrating at times, and you look at two pieces of cane that they really look similar on the exterior on the bark, but once you get the bark off and get inside the cane, you, it's just a, a shock as to how different these two pieces of cane are. So, yeah, I think our cane is the same as anybody else's cane because um, we get it from the same place, you know. Um, let's see here. Uh, Michael Gillespie. He's new to piping, and uh, he's he. Wa it sounds like he wants to know a little bit more about uh, shaving or sanding the reed. Um, okay, so this is just my opinion. Okay, and I I am not one of these people that think that have the only that they have the only good ideas out there because I think I do not have the only good, good set of ideas. <laughs> but what I'm going to tell you works. Okay. Um, for most of my life, I have not shaved the top end of a of a reed uh, unless the top end was too rough, like too much crow and these sort of things. I do the majority of my shaving on the bottom half. I I also have usually not been a sandpaper guy, so I manipulate the reed with a knife and I whittle, basically whittle a very small amount of cane off between the string and the ridge and um, in the end uh, bring the ridge down to a much smaller ridge. That's how I do it. So over the course of the life of a reed, in my opinion, it could and should be shaved a number of times very, very slightly. So I'm not big on one great big huge shave or sand, but rather a, a series of small ones just doing it when you feel the reed becoming tight or non or non-responsive. A little bit of shaving at the bottom will rejuvenate the reed and give it a lot more efficiency. Anyway, that's how I do it. Now I can clearly remember uh, the great John McAllister uh, who made those super superb uh, McAllister reeds back in the 60s, 70s, um, 60s and 70s. He was a sandpaper guy. And he sandpapered a reed from throughout the entire blade, right from the string up to the tip. I can clearly remember him doing that and thinking, whoa, man, <laughs> it's not my place to argue with John McAllister, but <laughs> I have never done that. You know, I think it, Pipers, are, Pipers as a group, we're a pretty curious group, and we like to try different things and find things that work for us. So I, I would definitely encourage people to do that. Now, are you against the sanding? You think because, people should oh, ruin sorry, before Vin. they uh, try something else. <laughs> Say that again, Vin. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's some. I think you will definitely ruin a few reads before you become, you know, confident with what you're doing. I mean, I still ruin a few reads. You think you should take it, you know, um, chop the end or shave it one more time or whatever, and you can find out that it's oh shoot, it's just you took it one too one step too far. So. 
you know, by no means do I think I've got it whipped. It's just a learning curve, you know. Does does the sanding you will ruin some reads. does the sanding destroy the tone, or does it, or does it even the, or does it cut down on the life of the read? Okay, I um, when I sand the read, I think that it adds to the life of the read. Now, there's a lot of people out there will disagree with this. People are dead set against licking a read or sanding a read or whatever because it shortens the life of the read. In my opinion, the other, the reverse is true. That appropriate sanding and licking, especially licking, adds to the life of the read. If you play a dry read, a dry, inefficient read, um, it's going to be very un. Um, well, it won't. It won't fulfill its potential. It won't be a warm enjoyable play. It'll be a dry, shriller type of a sound. And my experience is people get tired of that. And, you know, turf the read in the box and complain about, oh, it doesn't sound good, or it's, it's squeaking too much, or, you know, the high G is sharp, or whatever, whatever. And just by adding a little moisture or shaving a little bit, it can go from, you know, bad to good and, and become a read for some time. I think also, <clears throat> I've never, let me think about this to see if this is true in my mind. I think I can use the N-word, never. <laughs> I think I can use that word. I've never played a read uh, for more than a year ever in my life, I don't think. And I think, you know, a typical lifespan for me is four or five months. Um, because I'm still an active competitor, I'm, I like a fresh, bright sound. So I feel if I get you know six months out of a read, I've really had a, a great run with the read. But you know, for the most part, I have two or three months, you know, life of a good lifespan of a good read. Um, I'm also the type of person that likes to have a cup, two or three reads going at any one time. I like to do that, and I, I haven't always done that. But um, reads will tend to let you down at the worst time at sometimes. So. Anyway, I think those things add to the life of the read, and I'm, but I'm really not striving to add too much to it because I like a fresh read, a fresh sound of scene. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's definitely, uh, it's different from some of the, uh, um, some of the approaches that you see. I mean, some, I, I think Pat just admitted to me uh, that his read's like three years old and no, still no, no, going two, strong. Two. Oh, he's Not two. <laughs> It's two years old. And You're embarrassing me in front of Jack Lee. And it's not Come even on. a secret anymore, Pat. Yeah, I know. It's, like it's this out is... there in the world now. Hold off, it'll work. You know, some of the. Uh, I like to give Pat a hard time, you know. Uh, so he definitely um, said three, by the way. He did not say two. It's three all the yeah. way. He said two. For Pat. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I don't think you're saying there's anything wrong with that, right? I mean, it's just... You... I'm not saying... It. There's, there's definitely nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing wrong with it, nothing wrong with it. And at some point, I'll probably, you know, maybe do that. I don't know. I Just that I'm still actively competing as a soloist, and we're actively playing in the band. Uh, we find that older reads are, are, too, are more uh, susceptible to changes with weather and temperature and stuff than a fresh read. So a fresh set of reads, we reread SFU in the late summer before the world every year because we want to go to Scotland with fresh reads. So in the old days we weren't doing that, you know, we'd be at Scotland and the weather would be changing so fast, it would be sunny one moment and pouring rain and then it'd be cold 
And as soon as the temperature goes down with old reeds, the pitch goes down so fast. We found that if we had fresh cane in there, that it was much more likely to just to stay put and not uh, move around with, with the weather. So we made that shift in SFU collectively a number of years ago, and, and myself as well in, in the solos. I just feel more confident with a kind of a freshly broken in reed than I would with an old one. But you know, I'm I'm probably in the minority here. Okay, so here's a two-part question that I've compiled uh, from the audience. Uh, how do you how long does it take to break in a reed, and how do you know when it's time to uh, uh, to uh, set it aside and get a new one going? Okay, the time to break in a reed really really varies, and and in my opinion, you're looking at a couple of weeks or so, and sometimes longer than that. So I can tell when a reed is broken in because it no longer needs quite so much licking and pinching to really make it sound good. It will be stable, more stable. And I'll also tell it's broken in by the fact that it's no longer too hard for me, <laughs> that I can play the thing comfortably, it still sounds nice, and all that. So the two things that I look for as to indicate that the reed is um, approaching its and is uh, a reed that goes sharp on high G or the top hand in general. If it begins to go sharp on the top hand, that's a very bad sign. And I would be definitely poking that reed, poking and licking. But if you can do that, if you're doing it an excessive amount of times, then the reed, the strength in the cane is just whittling down, so it won't be able to stand it anymore right. and hold itself. So that's a sign. The other thing I look for is the color of the reed. You want the reed to be reasonably light in color at all times. You don't want the reed to uh, become dark and dreary. And when they get dark and dreary, you know, it's a sign of the cane breaking down. So that's just the physical appearance I'm, I'm talking about. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I break it in for a couple of weeks, little wee shapes and licks and pinches and stuff. It becomes a nice reed to play. And, and for me, you know, a few months, two or three months in, I'm beginning to usually find myself questioning the reed, whether it still has it or not, you know. So if uh, if Pat's uh, three-year-old reed is like black with little green spots on it, do you think he maybe should toss it aside? Yeah, I, I think he should stop using it as a nice cream scooper and maybe <laughs> the, look the for mint, something fresh. Use the mint chocolate chip time. look, you know, it's bad. It could be bad. Um, could be bad. Uh, it could be good, too. I mean, I, to, to be honest, could I... Be tasty. Uh, yeah, um, here's a good a good question, which uh, um, is uh, when you okay. So you're shaving between uh, the string line and the ridge. Um, mm -hmm. How do you do it on the sides, um, in the middle? Um, like I know the answer okay. to this, but uh, okay. uh, uh, this is just how I do it, and as I'm sure there are many ways to do it. I do it edge to edge without dwelling on the edge. So I do not do just straight down the middle. I go from edge to edge without dwelling on the edge. I don't like to break down the edge too much. Yeah, like some okay, people will But focus. I will do it. The, the cane is, you know, pretty consistently consistent in thickness from left to right. So I take a little skiff off of it all the way left to right. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, how about licking? So are we talking about, like, a big gob or, a, you know, a little little bit at the tip? Or okay, I, I get the reed wet. This, again, I, I, this is my opinion. I get the reed wet. I get the string wet. So so it's not soaked, but I make it damp from top to bottom. 
by putting it in my mouth and licking it a little bit quickly from the bottom up. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's uh, uh, that was a question from Mari Kotz, uh, who's uh, from, I think she's from upstate New York. Um, and uh, that's a good question because, you know, some some people are like way ultra conservative with the lick. And then some people are like soaking it in water overnight. <laughs> like Pat. Yeah. So, no, 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 no. I'm just kidding. Pat doesn't do that. I think it varies by player. I, I'm a pretty dry blower. And so I probably lick more than some others would have to lick. And, you know, I think also... You know, anybody that lives in the in the center of, you know, the prairie provinces of Canada or your your guys' um, central states, where or something where it's, where it's very very dry, um, or altitude, Salt Lake City, Colorado, some of these places are going to have to lick a lot more than some of the other people. So it does vary. I yeah, I do that before I start. I dampen the reed, and then I just listen to it as I'm playing, and I try to get a feel for the efficiency of it. And if it looks seems like it needs a little more, I give it another little lick. But don't have to usually lick the whole thing, you know, five times or anything. I get it moist, then I'll dab the end with my tongue a little bit. So I've never really been a water dipper, okay? <laughs> I've just I've licked it all, man. Any time throughout my career. Let's round it out by um, can you describe in any more detail the pinching process? Like, uh, okay. you're definitely doing it right, like, towards the bottom, towards the staple, right? Like, uh, I am, yeah. So, the pin, I, when I pinch a reed, it's, um, it's, uh, normally to free up the reed more than it is to make the reed easier. So, I don't like playing hard reeds at any time. So, but I like to play a reed that's just a tiny bit harder for me than I want, just a, just a tad too hard. I think that's important. And I think it's very important in a pipe band that everyone plays a reed that's just a wee bit harder than the desired reed. And then you take your fingers and give it a few little pinches, just little guys, on the bottom half of the reed. Just little pinches to get it freed up and working and bring it down to the strength that you can you can stand. Um, I think it's very important not to play like the ideal weight of reed all the time for everybody because you will find in, in pipe bands or, or maybe each of us individually that will overblow the reed uh, way too often if it's just like the ideal reed. So it's just a little bit of resistance there and a few little pinches, a few as in three or four little wee pinches in combination with the lick is, is what I do. Yeah, I mean, my ideal strength reed is uh, when I turn on my electronic chanter and... Uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so that wouldn't work, I don't think. You couldn't exert yourself so much, Doogie. Well, you know, it's it, it could be hard. And and you were, before the show started, you were pointing out the uh, pipe major trick. You know, I just have the guys break them in for me, and I I take my pick. Oh, I I don't think yeah. this I think this reads dead. I I don't think this reads no, going to be any. Absolutely, good. you got to do that. Yeah, you got to. But now the word is out. People have been looking for it now. Self preservation, man. You got to do it. You're right, though. I gave away my my trick. Here, uh, another question from the. Not that many hands raised here. Sometimes people call in, but uh, David Hogg again with, uh, <clears throat> is there any hope for a reed, you know, when the two blades end up kind of cockeyed and separated? Yeah, I think the answer is yes. So I generally think that pipers put way, way, way too much emphasis on the, on the um, accuracy of how it all lines up and whether the corners are perfectly sharp and all that. I can remember the time I won the Glenn Fittick. Um, oh, I definitely remember the time I won the Glenn Fittick. It was a number of years ago, and I only had one corner on that reed. 
that one, the other corner was completely broken off. It the reed looked terrible, but it really sounded great, and I loved that reed. And there was no way I was going to change that reed until the end of the season. So I've had lots of reeds in the old McAllister days. We, it was very, very common for the blades to be cockeyed, and I always used to think that was one of the secrets of the of the McAllister reed that was that he tied them just a little bit loosely. I, I, I don't know if I'm right on that, but I, I thought always thought that was a, a secret of his, you know, a little bit loosely tied. In the act of tying a reed, they be, they want to go misaligned. It's very annoying. You, you have to work a little bit to to line them up. So it's a little little bit challenging to do that. But um, yeah, I think I think I would be very cautious about throwing a reed out just because it doesn't look perfect anymore. Yeah, we've had a lot of reads I got in the band over the years that didn't look that great, but they sure sounded good. Yeah. yeah. So it's, just, it's the sound that you really need to worry about, like the responsiveness and the overall character of the read. Never mind yeah. its uh, visual appeal <laughs> with whatever, whatever you're seeing. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't uh, I can't agree more with that, Jack. I think, um, and uh, I love Donald Lindsay dearly, but he's really into this, like the art artistry of a read. He's got this read. And Donald's been on the show before, so uh, most of us are familiar with him. But he's got this reed that I forget who made it. I think it might have been Travail from um, Australia. But he's so oh, taken. Yes. He's so taken with the craftsmanship of the reed that he's never <laughs> played the reed, and he never will. Oh my! <laughs> he won't play it. Crazy. He, he just likes to look at it. He <laughs> just funny. he looks at it and he's That's like, funny. "Look at this thing." I got to bring is in. This, the, is it? Every now and then we'll be talking about reed making. For whatever reason, and he'll be like, "Work of art, you know. You have to encase it in glass and never touch it again." Oh yeah, he uh, he did let me touch it. Very funny. He let me touch it, but he got very nervous when it was out of his hands. Uh, It was like I I I mean, I was I'm always big on that too. Is you know the the actual craftsmanship of the reed. You know, I mean, you know, it should should achieve some basics. You know, it should be nice, tight binding. You know, the blade should meet at the base, things like that. You know. you know, I, like, and and then Jack, I I've come to realize over the years too is, 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 you know, there's a corner missing or there's a little sort of nick in the in the, in the edge or something like that. As long as it's performing good, <laughs> there's you know what what's the difference, you know? I agree with that. So we have, you know, we often get reads that don't look as good as we want them. Whatever for those two things, the reed blades don't line up or the or the corners get broken off or whatever, minor things like that. But when we have that, you know, if we notice that, we don't send the read out. I just usually keep them here and we'll either give them to one of our students or, uh, you know, take the read apart and, and, and make something out of this, uh, reuse the staple rather than throwing it in the garbage can. We do use reuse the staple. It's kind of a shame because you probably just can't sell them like that. You look, looks kind of weird sending out a read like that, but they're often just as good as any other read, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of those simple things like if you notice a little sort of like corner fiber comes off. I mean, you know, in the past, you know, there's a lot of places that I know, and I give them this myself, they just, just toss it aside without even putting yeah. it back in to see how it sounds. And a lot but, of times the reason sounds sometimes better than it did even with that little piece. Yeah, I, you know? Well, I, I, I remember my Glenn Fittick read breaking and the corner falling off. And I remember being, you know, pouting to myself, oh, geez. But when I blew that read up, man, it sounds so good. I didn't even begin to notice that there was like a chunk missing out of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so that's awesome. Just be a little bit cautious. I also find it takes, you know, it takes a, it's an investment in time and and, and money and everything to, to get a good read. Now, you know, you're picking it out, and you're breaking it in, you're shaving it. And, you know, it, 
and they, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. What, so um, when you get a good one that you really, really like, I mean, it's like golden, you know, you just, you just gold. So I would be very cautious about throwing out a good read because it doesn't look that hot. Yeah, uh, I think, um, <clears throat> I think definitely, uh, it can't be, it's got to be about sound, not about, uh, not about prettiness. Donald, if you're out there. Andrew, maybe, Andrew, we don't have that much time left, but maybe I should just take a couple of minutes and, and talk about the tunes and whatnot that I have on the website. Yes, that'd be awesome. I was you, just about, I was, I was working on that transition myself. You're, you're, um, you're much more efficient. Your listeners might be interested. Anyway, um, for at least 25 years, I, I've kept the tape recorder running here when I've been practicing. So, you know, we, um, I was very fortunate to have a great teacher in Vancouver, a gentleman named Jimmy McMillan, who passed away a few years ago. But uh, in addition to lessons with Jimmy, I would um, really self-critique. So I always have, always have the tape recorder running and, and try to find time to play the recordings back and, and critique them and, you know, find ways to get better at them. And then I was making tune CDs up for Piping Hot Summer Drummer and some of the other schools. Um, and one thing led to another, and I pretty soon I had, you know, hundreds of tunes recorded. I've actually recorded 2,000 tunes. So when we're putting the website together, I thought, shoot, I should probably use these in some way. So of the eight, of the 2,000 odd tunes, uh, at least 800 of them are public domain. That What makes them public domain is that the composer has been deceased for a sufficient number of years. So anyway, um, those were dead easy for me to put up uh, because the recordings were done. So I, I put up these 800 tunes and it includes 122 P-Brocks. So if anybody, down, and a lot of people have done this, they've downloaded tunes. The tunes are, the late music are $3 each and the P-Brocks are $5 each. And for that, they get a recording of the tune of me playing on the pipe. So it's not, you know, practice chanter or, or anything else. It's a real bagpipe. And uh, hopefully they would say the pipes are in tune. <laughs> I certainly try to make them in tune. Anyway, uh, recording the tune, um, the tune, the sheet music of the tune in two formats, bagpipe music writer and PDF. So they get all this and they also get a 50% credit for a month. So if, you know, if they buy a, a tune for three bucks, uh, they get a dollar fifty credit, which they can use and apply against anything else on the site, which is pipe chanteries. So awesome. we've uh, definitely sold hundreds of tunes in the last few months, and it's, the majority uh, of people—the majority of people that have bought tunes—have come back to buy a chantery later at a discounted price. So it's been a kind of a fun project. Um, the 122 P Rocks—I can honestly say that took me—I don't know—hour, hundreds of hours to record. And um, when you're competing at Oban and Inverness and the Dan Reed in San Francisco and some of these contests, the Glenn Fiddick, there are often, you know, quite a range of tunes required. So uh, the number of tunes that I've recorded just grew, grew and grew over the years. Uh, as I said, I've got over over a thousand more that are not public domain, or at least I just haven't had the time to go back and check on that. But I'll be I'll be putting more and more up. Yeah, how fast do the recordings go? Uh, in the people I kind of like music. I mean, you know, I mean, how early in your career are some of these tunes? Um, well, the funny thing about that, yeah, pretty early. I mean, before I won the gold medal, I was I was doing that. So, um, but I can honestly say that also some of the old ones I just went back and re-recorded them because I didn't like, you know, I've been, I I think I play better now than I did then or whatever, and or I'm doing 
doing slightly different things with the tunes now that I, I like more than I liked back then, or the quality of the rec recording wasn't good enough, so I just re-recorded it on you know digital recorder here. So, um, but uh, there's a lot of stuff from the early '80s for sure. Jack, let me. Um, I th we had a, a really cool question here, which I think could be good to wrap it up because uh, I know that uh, you probably got stuff going on here. Um, you know, what's the uh, what's the future look like here for Lee and Sons? Is it always going to be reads and uh, you know music, or are you going to branch out? I know that uh, um, McCallum, for instance, uh, uses CNC machines to make full blown bagpipes. Is that something you're going to go into? Um. Yeah, I don't. Well, we have some plans. Okay, we have some future plans, but I'm not going to talk about it quite yet. So, um, you know, stay tuned. Okay, but right now we're just really busy. Uh, we're we're still hundreds of reads behind. There's been a tidal wave of orders, more than we can possibly keep up with, and we're um, doing our best to to make good reads and get them out the door, and not you know, be super late with shipping. So we we have our hands full and. And uh, we'll see what the future holds. Um, All right. Well, that's great. Well, Jack, thanks very much for joining us. It's been um, uh, super packed with tons of awesome information. And uh, uh, it's really um, good of you to, you know, uh, spend your time with us. And we'll do our My best to, to we'll do our best to help promote your reads because uh, 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 I'd like to just add, Andrew, that. You know, you can get re my our reads from various places, but one of the places you can definitely get them is the Piper's Dojo. And um, for those of the people in that area, you know, Andrew is very, very knowledgeable picking out reads and matching it to your chanter and your, your strength and stuff. So feel free to go to the dojo to get them, yeah? Yeah, and we'll uh, definitely be that, hopefully, uh, uh, somewhat educated middleman there and, and get the... Get <laughs> yeah, the, I'm sure you will. Get the right reads out. So, Jack, uh, take care, and uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Right, and uh, we'll probably, I think we'll skip the music tonight, and we'll just sign off. Uh, okay. So, uh, Jack, we'll see you later. Great. Thanks for your time, everyone. All right, everybody. Uh, good night, all. See you next week. Good night. Thank you. Good night.